Welcome to the Malaspina Theatre Podcast in our beautiful Malaspina Theatre Lobby on Vancouver Island University's Nanaimo campus. Every episode we'll feature members of our community on a wide variety of different topics, themes, and styles of podcasting. Our goal is to foster discussions important to our community members and highlight emerging talent. We'd like to acknowledge and thank Snowmic, Watson, Salalman, Snownoas, and Qualcomm First Nation on whose traditional lands we teach, learn, research, live, and share knowledge. Hi, welcome to the VIU podcast. Um, uh, my name is Rowan O'Callaghan. I'm an actor and a student here at Malaspina Theatre. Um, today we are going to be talking about art and theater and how it pertains to capitalism and the audience and uh, what is the intrinsic value of art, really. Um, and we're going to go around and introduce ourselves. Yeah, so I'm Alex. I'm a third-year psychology student as well as a theater student at Malisapina Theater. My name is David Warburton. I am the executive director at the Port Theater. Uh, my name is Maya Wilson. I'm a VIU alum. I took one theater class, <laughs> and I'm the booking coordinator at the Port Theater. Awesome. Yeah, that's really cool. You guys, like, like you know, what kind of shows and what kind of art you choose to put on for, say, your community. Um, art has intrinsic value, but in sort of this capitalist society, um, it's does the artist define art or is it the audience and what kind of shows would you say be picking to put on at the port theater um especially in a world where money kind of controls everything especially in a post-covid world it, it's definitely a struggle um i know Div and i work really hard with the calendar to find the balance between those shows that are going to have a lot of artistic importance and um, importance to the community but also the balance to like we are technically a business, and <laughs> we can't run a massive deficit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I approach uh, programming in a number of different ways. Um, we have a pretty diverse audience um, in Nanaimo um, around especially demographics, for example. Um, so something that I was very interested in introducing to our programming this season was programming for theater for young audiences, specifically. So um, again, that's that's um, programming that you can have certain artistic selection choices in there, but with a very um, intended audience. Other pieces you can simply program just on kind of the artistic merits and the topic that you're trying to address. Um, and then I also want to balance, you know, what section of our programming is just a really great time to go out and enjoy yourself and escape your reality and um and and just have a bonding experience as a family or as a couple or even as an individual just to go see a show versus something that might be deeply provocative um, something that might even disturb you a little bit ask some really hard questions about uh, yourself or the world around you um, but we know that's not what everybody wants to sign up for, and that's a totally valid um, choice for everyone to make. Um, it, it's up to them, and I hope that we are able to offer a wide enough range of experiences that um, everyone um, can see themselves coming to a show at the Port Theatre, that there's something there for them, and that um, we're not 
working in a very narrow band, which sometimes happens when you work specifically for a particular company where they have a very specific art form, maybe a very specific niche that they try to uh, address. And, and then that is, you know, it's very clearly your purpose. But we are a civic venue in many regards. We're uh, almost like a community center sometimes. And so we really have to be thinking about you know, the, the wide uh, number of people that we are trying to serve in that conversation. The first part of your question was also about who defines art. And um, art will always be uh, um, subjective to whoever is um, looking at it. And it's maybe kind of where um, physicists and, and, and artists kind of align. It's, it's about the observation can actually change the state of things. And so in that regard, um, the, kind of the mission of who defines art is not um, singularly assigned to a particular um, person in a particular role. It is really up to um, whoever is witnessing whatever is happening, whether they're witnessing as a participant or witnessing as a receiver of um, whatever they're, they're viewing or listening to or even feeling, for them to, to make their own call on whether um, it speaks to them and that there's value there to be derived. Uh, that's really interesting. Thank you for your answer. Um, yeah, do you, um, can I ask why, um, what drew you to the arts and getting involved in theater and in performance and everything? Um, well, for me personally, I, I grew up locally. I grew up in Ladysmith and um, my mom was very fond of the arts. So I grew up listening to <laughs> Um, Swan Lake soundtracks at home off a of record uh, and she took me to the port as a kid to see the ballet and my first job was at the Shimano Theater Festival and so I worked there for many years um, and being around that many artists all the time and making friends with them and understanding how important art was like I already knew how important it was I did in high school but it was just really beautiful to see how it changed people's lives like they would come to one show and then they would slowly start buying season tickets because it, it was really special evening out for them um, they'd come in off work and they'd had a crappy day and then they'd come watch a beautiful show and they would feel better. Um, they were also faced with important conversations um, and all that kind of stuff. So then I slowly just fell more and more and more in love with it. Um, and now I work at the port and so I get to help share those beautiful shows with other people, encourage them to come down and see them and remind them how important art is and that it's valuable and it has to stay. Hmm. That's really cool. Yeah, I always knew I was going to end up in the arts. So even in high school, I was I was working in community theater. I went to um, a fine arts program at the high school level, um, and then all went and pursued a post secondary education around it. Um, you know, I I always loved the arts. I loved the way it made me feel. Um, I loved the people and the passion that they had for the arts. I always felt deeply accepted in that community. Um, it was um, really a deeply rewarding experience, even as a really young person, to um, contribute to a project or a show and um, to influence that process and to make a real contribution. And it was something that I think in my life I didn't really feel like I had a lot of um, alternatives that offered me as much um, in terms of 
um, what I was kind of deriving from that experience and that I felt accomplished in a lot of the things that we did. And so, um, yeah, so I just always loved it and I, I knew I wanted to go into it and I stuck with it. And now, um, you know, some 20 years later, I'm, I'm still doing it and I feel very grateful for that. Well, even at the university level, I was I started here in science, and I slowly fell into the arts. Yeah, <laughs> I'm so glad I did. <laughs> oh, yeah. Didn't start that way though. Um, yeah, I uh, the kind of the with that discussion of like what drew you to the arts. Do you feel like art needs to have a message, and do you think that like inherently it is to teach in its role in community? Um, I know like kind of bringing back to like the circling back about what you said about like what people want and whether they want to just go out in the town and have a nice night um, versus, you know, going out and feeling uncomfortable or learning something or whatever. And do you feel like money and its role in that maybe limits the capacity that artists have to really like give that message or like make something thing? Because if you're being publicly funded versus being funded by different corporations that have vested interests in different things. Um, you know, how does, like, art fit into that, really? You know, mm -hmm. and do you feel like we all have this passion and this love for the arts, um, but uh, can that be fully actualized in capitalism? Yeah, so... Uh, you touched on a couple things here, so I'll, mm -hmm. I'll do my best to kind of uh, address them. So the, the first one being, does art always have uh, a message? Um, I think it does. It kind of depends. Again, it's a subjective thing. So sometimes an artist has a very clear message that they want delivered, and then you put it in front of a critic or an audience, and they derive this totally other me meaning to it that was not intended. And sometimes that goes well, and sometimes it doesn't go well. Um, sometimes those messages are deeply profound and, and have a very significant contribution to society, and other times they're, you know, arguably meaningless. And... Um, and so sometimes that is the message, right, is that it's like an irrelevant message um, and, and it's not supposed to be very significant. Um, and there's a place for that art, you know, whether you can debate somebody should pay for every piece of art that's out there, that's a whole other thing. Um, and again, up to the individual. Uh, you know, Maya and I program in a space where, you know, we do have to be mindful that um, we rely on that as a revenue stream to then go and fund more art. And so it is easy to say, oh, I, I just like to program all these things and none of them are going to make money. But you're also in some ways mortgaging your ability to actually fund other art as well through that mm -hmm. process. So like you know, the reason why a lot of arts groups are not-for-profit charities are specifically that every dollar that you kind of raise inside your organization goes back into your mission and your mandate. And so you have to be really careful about how reckless you are because you can very easily just sink an organization. It disappears. And um, that's kind of one of the things, the, ro the roles and responsibilities of an arts administrator is to care, especially for institutions or organizations that have been around for a really long time, that you're, you're kind of in there because your predecessors have acted hopefully responsibly, gotten the organization to a place, and then you know, your your goal ultimately is to hand that organization off to the next person and the next generation of, of people. And it would be a very different scenario 
Um, unfortunately, it's very common in BC where kind of these organizations rise and they fall kind of with one person or, or one cycle. And then for the next generation to come, the only choice they have is to just start something again. But it's that, that first growth period is where you experience the most hurdles and that, you know, in some ways it would be way easier if you could just inherit an established company that had built resources, that maybe owned their own building. They, they had certain kind of level of capital infrastructure and all those things. So, you know, uh, we're getting a little uh, off topic there, but <laughs> it's, it's something that Maya and I have to be very mindful when we're making our programming decisions around the financial implications of that. Um, with respect to, um, you know, capitalist, uh, or yeah, capitalist kind of models in how we are making our decisions and how they ultimately affect art. Um, you know, I, I think it's very easy to, to be very negative around the commercial model, for example, um, because a lot of artists see that as like, maybe you have to sell your soul or you have to compromise on your intrinsic integrity in order to make something. Um, but, you know, you have to take that for what it is as well, that, you know, if you are commercially successful, there are lots of examples of people who haven't had to necessarily do that. Um, and, and they're very successful and they reach lots and lots of people. You know, but there's also, you know, lots of examples of, you know, especially music with record labels coming in and really interfering and, and you know, maybe irresponsibly intervening in, in the craft of somebody. And that's obviously something that you, you want to avoid mm -hmm. as much as possible. Um, but, you know, it, there really aren't that many um, funding streams out there as alternatives where you still don't have that type of influence. So even when you are funded through uh, Canada Council for the Arts or BC Arts Council or the Municipal Arts Council, um, it, uh, you have to write applications, you have to submit those applications, they're juried, and those juries make decisions on what's funded and what's not funded, and you have to write those applications in certain ways, you have to find sponsors and all sorts of things. Everything takes money, and and there's very few cases where that money isn't kind of tied to something, um, where you have to just be mindful of that. Hopefully, you can find a situation where you don't have as much meddling, but there there is no such thing as free money out there. Mm -hmm. So you, even if it comes from a philanthropic point of view or a commercial point of view, mm -hmm. um, certain sponsors will only give to certain shows that they see value in. Um, and certain grants you have to stick within certain parameters so a percentage of it needs to be music or dance or in a certain language and you have to stick to that even if you haven't written the show yet but you get the grant to write the show you still have to stay within those parameters mm -hmm. hmm. I have read that like the Canada Council of Arts typically sort of really likes to give money to certain um, like subjects at certain times depending on what's relevant during the time do you find that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, Canada Council for the Arts um, historically was set up to be arm's length from politics. So even though it's federal government, it is supposed to operate independently of whatever politics happens. But again, money is money and, and money talks in many regards. And so sometimes governments come in and they give lots of money to Canada Council for the Arts and other governments really strip it away. And that ultimately forces them to have to make decisions around 
um, whether they want to continue funding existing clients or if they want to shift that money away from existing clients into new clients or open or, or shrink the envelope, essentially. And so with that also comes different priorities that it depends on who the jury is, but also who the program officers are and who is on the board of directors for Canada Council for the Arts. And so, um, yeah, some very intentional decisions have been made over the years to maybe amalgamate streams. And so then suddenly you're submitting dance applications in with theater applications and various other things with respect to touring, for example. That's where they kind of amalgamated it. It used to, dance used to have its own touring stream and theater used to have its own stream. Now you're kind of like, everyone's in the same <laughs> stream. And so then you're even finding juries where they don't have necessarily like a discipline specific focus because they pull juries from visual artists and music and dance and all sorts of things and they're just kind of assessing these things um and then you know um i think it was a good thing this time around but you know past governments have have sometimes made questionable ones where you know reconciliation was a federal priority for this government that came in they doubled the funding to canada council for the arts which was you know this historic increase but we saw very clearly that priority work its way into Canada Council for the Arts. And um, you know, in a good way, we saw a lot of um, indigenous and equity deserving companies that had you know, rural focuses or worked with artists with intellectual disabilities, for example, start to access funding in ways that they never had been able to. And even with this Canada Council for the Arts, there was a big conversation around whether they should just be funding professional Right? That whole word around professional, does that exclude a lot of community art that is out there, cultural art that is out there that is inseparable to um, you know, the cultural identity of a particular group where they don't see it as a profession. It's part of their life and, and, uh, and their culture. So again, like those conversations are, are really impactful when you make a decision and you say, you know, we're only about professional artists or not. That, that had massive implications good and, and bad. Hmm. Thank you. It's a good answer. Um, yeah, no, that's really interesting. It definitely, um, when it comes down to, like, say, money and, uh, I'd say, you know, censorship and what is considered art, what is considered professional art, correct art, um, it definitely also comes down to, and I think that's where, like, art is, unfortunately, slightly inherently political, not always and not for every single piece, but like, of course it is, right? Because, you know, um, it's cultural and it's, and say kind of, I'm, I'm interested to circle back like to what you were saying earlier about like people wanting to go out and just enjoy their time and like say not think too hard about like say the message of the art. Cause though, I mean, I'd love to just sit back and watch some meaningless trite like reality TV show sometimes <laughs> just to be entertained. Um, do you see, and maybe this is a bit philosophical, especially post-COVID, do you see um, people, I find, almost want to check out and almost don't want to think too hard about their art? And I feel like I, I hear a lot of, especially maybe it's around younger people too, but this feeling of like, it's not that deep, it doesn't matter that much, we don't need to think that deeply about it. And uh, do you think that leads to a misunderstanding of how political art is and how important it is to view it through the lens of like race and gender and sexuality and all that because it does and money it all does kind of coincide 
I think the difference between a piece of work where you'll watch it and absorb some important information from and a piece of show that you art that you want to just check out and watch are totally different. And the checkout shows down the port, we fondly refer to them as comfort food. Mm -hmm. um, Whirlwind Big Palais is comfort food. Um, Christmas shows are comfort food. Um, it doesn't mean they're any less important than other dance shows or anything else. It just means that they're familiar and they're comfort food. Um, because, yeah, definitely post-COVID, people are drawn to those, and we don't present them, but rental clients do, tribute shows. Mm -hmm. um, so the Frank Sinatra tribute shows, the Abbott tribute shows, everything. People will always go to those they did before COVID because they're comfortable and they're fun. And it doesn't mean that it's not good music and it's not presented at high quality um, and they're not good songs. It's just they're more comfortable than listening to... Uh, Nanaimo doesn't seem to have a huge opera audience or... and. And you would throat singer like that kind of yeah. thing. You're not going to get the same turnout because it, those ones you have to think about and you have to know more about to go to. Hmm. And it's really important to find a balance. And I, I enjoy my comfort food shows, but I also enjoy my other shows as well. Mm -hmm. Understandable. Um. I do also notice that like there are some shows. So, for example, we were talking about Josephine, mm -hmm. where it was like. It's just a fun, like it can be a fun sit back and enjoy show, or it can be an educational show, depending on what you look for in the, like what the audience member looks for. Totally. And I think those shows, like especially, have some really like, good, something really good to say and can be really good for the current audiences that we have. The part I found fun about Josephine was a few people I talked to were just like, it was so much fun. I would love to watch it again. And some people were like, I went home and read all about her and did all this research and she was so great and I want to see it again. And they definitely, like some people just saw it as entertaining and some people really did take away an education piece from it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Do you notice like across the island there's a difference between your audiences? I know like you specifically work with the Port Theatre, so that's Nanaimo, but mm -hmm. have you ever noticed any sort of difference? When I worked at Shimanus, our audience was mostly older, right. for sure. Um, I see a lot more younger, um, you know, 30, 40 year old people at the port than I ever did at Shimanus when I worked there. Um, but I stopped working there in about 2018. So, I mean, it could be different now. But when I was there, it was definitely mostly retirees, people close to retirement. You hardly ever saw young couples at the theater at Shimanus. Um, but I see them all the time down at the port. It might just be the style of shows we present, because we don't do a lot of theater, which means does, but it might just be a demographic thing as well. I think it's also about investment, though, right? Um, again, kind of going back to this topic of the difference between having to start something from scratch and something that carries on. Victoria has a very large um, dance crowd that goes out and sees dance. So Dance Victoria is arguably the largest presenter in uh, Victoria, and they program just dance. And so that's a bit unusual, but that's because Dance Victoria has been there for decades at this point and has really built that following. They, you know, if you love dance and you've been introduced to Dance Victoria and you've learned about them and you've gone and seen their shows, they've built that into something now. And I think if it disappeared and you wait long enough, it w you couldn't just resume that from scratch. And so Shimanus has cultivated a certain audience, and that's kind of what they've become famous for. Mm -hmm. um, we have 
you know, we have a lot of tribute bands that is a cultivated audience nonetheless that understands that, you know, they can regularly check out the Port Theatre and see those tribute bands and they come out in, ma in huge numbers. Yeah. We, we have an incredible amount of programming that comes through our doors disproportionate to the size of the city that we're in. Attendance is really high. Um, this audience has kind of learned and accepted that and, and embraced it in some ways. And in other places, they just haven't had that opportunity. So um, I, I think it really is um, about kind of investing and cultivating different groups of people to reach. And so that's what we try to do in our programming, and that's also why it's extra challenging. We would, you know, maybe be able to cultivate a really big opera following in Nanaimo. I mean, there are opera lovers there, yeah. but if we were programming opera all the time, we could probably get there and, and do really well. But if we brought in an opera tomorrow, know it's it's hard for us to say because we don't have a good um uh we don't have a lot of historical data to back that up and we know we haven't built that up so we we have to go find those people and that takes time yeah that makes a lot of sense um yeah and kind of i mean not the greatest segue but i also kind of want to discuss uh technology and ai created products and how art kind of is gonna and how human-created art may have, like, a larger and larger role going forward. I'm sure you guys have seen, like, the AI-created paintings, the AI-created scripts, books, all that kind of thing. Those scripts are freaky. They're very freaky. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and I was just wondering, you know, obviously, AI, it's not great right now, if you can, but it's, it's definitely there, and it's just going to get better. And, I mean, there's no putting the cat back in the bag. Um, say like 10 years down the line there's like this really great script and it was AI generated and like blah 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 um, how valuable do you feel like that art is? Well I think you have to put parameters into the system for the AI to spit it out mm -hmm. so I think you'd have to look at who put the stuff into the system and then you have to consider that when you consider AI scripts because the computer didn't just create it on its own. Somebody gave it parameters to create with. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's an important piece that people forget about when they talk about AI scripts. They think, oh, the computer just magically spat this out. And it's like, no, somebody gave it something to spit out. Like there was a starting point. <laughs> yeah. For and, now. and it could have been an artist for now anyway. Yeah. Like um, a friend of mine is writing a show and he felt really stuck. He was like, I need a piece to do a thing and I can't make it. So he, for fun, just to see what it was like, put some stuff in an AI parameter and it spat out a script and he actually liked parts of it and he's gonna integrate it into his show and that helped his artist block a lot, just using that as a prompt. Mm -hmm. um, but again, he still put in the input, the computer spat it out and then he took what it spat out and changed it and put it into the show. So it's AI generated, but it's not, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It, it's a frontier that we're going to have to face, confront one way or another because right now, for example, a lot of machine learning and algorithms are actually machines teaching other machines to do things. Um, and they're able to do that on these scales where, you know, you have kind of this one machine and its instruction is to go tell a bunch of other machines to do this task, you know, maybe a million times over. And then it picks the ones that are the most successful and then it collects those batches, makes little tweaks to it, and then repeats that cycle. And it can happen inside kind of this closed box where at the end of it, 
it might be really successful in recognizing bees, right, in photos. Like, this, that's what you train this bot to do. And the humans have no idea how it works because the machine has been just kind of through trial and error, but on massive scales, kind of taught this thing to do it. And that's what's going to happen with our AI, essentially. Um, you know, humans will always be a little bit subjective on it. But again, it's this whole thing in video games around procedurally generated content to create these huge worlds where once upon a time, you would have to have a game designer come and actually, you know, look at the ground and say, this is a path and a texture we want and make these decisions. Now these procedurally generated content just do that. And that's going to become more prevalent in um, uh, virtual reality and augmented reality and all sorts of other things. Um, you know, every time a new piece of technology emerges, there's always been a fear that it's going to lead to kind of these catastrophic consequences um, to kind of humans and humanity. And they said it about the radio and the television yeah. and the internet and all sorts of things. Um, you know, AI will probably be one of those things as inevitable as a smartphone that um, it's just going to find uh, a wide range of uses and be deployed in different ways. Um, and in some ways, though, it will probably lead to more jobs and more creative um, industries that emerge from that technology. Um, and it might also deplete some other areas. But that's just the natural evolution of art. And I think really, um, you know, um, ultimately it will come down to who is the audience, who is it for, what the value they derive from it, and, and that will just have to be part of the conversation. Maybe your graphic artist won't be creating kind of these paintings in the same way, but they might be, you know, a more of a curator in the future, or they might be trying to get that IA into a whole other space or use it in other creative ways that we just never imagined. And so I think that's just something that will will evolve over time, and I think lots of people will will want to participate in that conversation. Um, but I think it's it's too early to say like, is this going to be the death of artists and and those things? I I really haven't. There there isn't another example where that's happened, and there's certainly been other technology that has been much more disruptive to the arts than AI technology. So. Um, you know, I, I think as long as humans are involved in this process somehow, even as just on a consumption basis, um, that's not going to totally destroy kind of the artistic community and, and what kind of humans are trying to tell each other and teach each other and all of those things. It will probably just become a tool in how that is delivered. Thank you for your responses. It's very interesting. Um, yeah. What do I think of that? Um, thank you for your responses. It's very interesting. You're welcome. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I feel like technology definitely is leading us in a certain way. Um, I wonder further and further as like the internet culture and the internet is like further enmeshed with reality um, and sort of this like large uh, cultural yearning for like comfort food. Um, I wonder where that's leading us, um, especially in terms of, you know, money, everything, diluting a message. What it, What is radicalism now in 2023, right? How can you be radical? Lots of different ways to 
fight back against that. Um, I mean, what is censorship even? Who knows? Um, <laughs> we need to wrap up soon. Um, so, yeah, any final comments or anything I just want to thank you both for joining us. It's been really interesting to hear your points of views, mm -hmm. and I really do appreciate it. Thanks for inviting us up. Yeah, no, thank you. It's very interesting. Yeah, thanks. We really enjoyed it.